I do want to reiterate what um, Rich said earlier, because I know many of you came in late, uh, and just wish every mother in here a happy Mother's Day. Um, you're welcome. Um, and also, too, for those of us, you know, like me, um, who've lost um, our mother, or maybe you in here have lost a child, uh, a miscarriage of some sort, just know that your God is with you, and he hears you, he knows your pain, and um, he loves you. So go with me to Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. We've been journeying through the book of Mark, um, and today we have a doozy of a section, and I'm excited to jump through it with you. So Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. It says, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? They kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child, put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives me, not me, but him who sent me. And then John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will be by no means lose his reward. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. All right, so before we jump in, I want to remind you of a couple things that Tristan talked about last week that is going to help us understand these uh, four moments better. So, First, let me remind you that we are in the second half of the book of Mark. The confession of Peter in Mark chapter 8 serves as the continental divide between the first half of Mark and the second half of Mark. And the first half of Mark is primarily about who is he, whereas the second half of the book of Mark um, is more about our discipleship. What does it mean that he is the Christ? How does that impact the way that we follow him? So the second half is more about our discipleship, okay? What does it look like 
to be a follower of Christ. And in Mark 8 through 10, Jesus will three times, three times, plainly declare his mission and purpose, okay? He will explicitly tell his disciples that he, the son of man, the king of all kings, will suffer and die. He did it in Mark 8.31. He's going to say it today, and he's going to say it one more time in Mark chapter 10, that it's a declaration that the one who has authority of all things, I mean, he has all authority. He is the king, but the one who has all authority intends to embrace suffering. So look at chapter 9, verse 31. It says, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man, So from Daniel 7, the one who has dominion and power, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, if you have a translation that says the Son of Man will be betrayed, that's not a fully accurate translation, because you can't just say that the suffering and death of Jesus happened because, and many people will say, um, well, the suffering death of Jesus happened because Judas was betrayed. Well, it's deeper than that, okay? Uh, Delivered is a more accurate translation here because this is a reference to the sovereign plan of God, that God has planned all things from beginning to end, that the delivering of Jesus, his death, was planned from the beginning, and it will go just as God wills it to go. And so it's worth noting here, and this is one of the things I love about preaching through a book of the Bible, is you get to these small moments where you could just pass them up, but really you want to take advantage of these moments where God is teaching us some theological truths. And so it's worth noting here that if we look carefully at the text, we see what is known as the dueling realities of the divine sovereignty of God and human responsibility. That's what we see here the mystery of the divine sovereignty of God and human responsibility. So I want to talk about that just for a second. We could just easily pass this by. It'd probably be easier, (laughs) to be honest. But I think it's important that we understand this. So Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be delivered. Okay, you see that? There is intent there, right? There is a plan. He's going to be delivered. Someone's delivering him over. That on one hand, It was the definite plan of God that God would put on flesh and die, okay? But on the other hand, for the one to participate in that act, the act of killing Jesus, they will face responsibility for those actions. You see this a little bit more clear in Acts. So in Acts 2.23, the apostles, it should be on the screen for you, the apostles are speaking and they're talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. They say, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So do you see both realities there? Okay, Acts 4.27, here's another example. The apostles are praying and they say, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So you see these dueling realities in in the scriptures. God is sovereign. He's moving the pieces on the board to do his will. But at the same time, the same time, people are responsible for the choices that they make. 
And so it's important when we come to a text like this, when we think about the whole of Scripture, that we remember, right? One, we are responsible for the choices that we make. You are responsible for the choices that you make. However, the depravity of human choices is not evidence that God does not have all authority. Does that make sense? The reality that human beings make bad choices does not trump the reality that God is, in, is not in control, okay? So our choices matter. We will be held accountable for the choices that we make on this life. But on the other hand, do not be fooled into thinking that your choices will trump God's will. God is going to do what he wills to do. So he is sovereign. He is control, in control over your family. He's in control over your money. He's sovereign over your future. But you are also responsible for the decisions that you make in this life. And so we may never fully understand how this works, <laughs> how these dueling reality works, but, but here's the good news. We are human beings. We will make bad decisions. We will make bad choices. We will choose sin in our flesh. But the beautiful thing about the sovereignty of God is that because he is in control and because he is good, he can and will redeem the choices that we make and use our lives for his purposes and his glory. Does that make sense? He's molding us. He's conforming us to his image. And he does not leave us in the midst of our sin. He leads us in this life. Just like he planned before all things that he, his son would die on the cross. Okay? Now, back to our text uh, today. The question for the disciples and for us is, do we understand why he's going to suffer? Okay? Do we understand that? Do the disciples understand that? And how should we follow him down the road of suffering? So think back to Mark chapter 8. He calls his disciples to pick up their cross and follow him. He says, if you want to follow me, then you must go down the road of suffering. He then takes them on a mountain to display his glory. And as they're coming down that mountain, he tells them, the Son of Man, it is written that the Son of Man will suffer. And then last week, he taught them about faith, that if we're going to follow him, then we need to depend on him. And today, today he's going to teach them two things. One, humility. To be a disciple is to be humble. And second, he's going to teach them about the reality and seriousness of sin. So look at verse 33. The disciples and Jesus, they returned to Capernaum, but this time is different than the last time that they were here. Last time they were here, Jesus was revealing his identity, okay? This time, Jesus wants to teach his disciples what it means to follow him. And so he asked them a question in verse 33. It says, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? So as we were making our journey to Capernaum, disciples, what were you guys talking about? Now, surely Jesus knows, right? I mean, he's God, number one. Two, he could have just overheard them talking, but he says, hey guys, what were you talking about earlier? And the text says that they kept silent. They didn't respond. And so Mark tells us on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. So just for a second, let's imagine what that conversation could have been like, because I would have loved 
to see and hear that conversation. So the disciples, they're walking to Capernaum and they start talking about all the wonderful things that they've been doing, how they've healed the sick, how they've casted out demons. And then maybe they start bragging about their individual accomplishments, right? Like, hey, you remember that little boy that I healed? Oh yeah, well, what about the time I casted out that demon? Let's say Peter pops up and he says, well, I'm the one that confessed that Jesus was the Christ to which James and John, the sons of thunder might've said, yeah, didn't he call you Satan right after that? I mean, it would have been just a fascinating conversation, I think, right? And so they were discussing which one among them was the greatest. And so Jesus says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're silent. They don't respond. It almost gives off the idea, the impression, that they were ashamed to answer him, right? Like when you were a kid and you were doing something you weren't supposed to, or parents, maybe this happens with you and your kids all the time, and you walk into the room and you say, hey, what are you doing? And you, just, uh, you don't have an answer, right? You, you freeze. And so why do the disciples <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> meet Jesus, Jesus' question, with silence? All right, a couple things here that I think are important. First, we must understand the importance of honor in the first century. This is very important. Um, the idea of honor was in every aspect of Jewish life, like where you sat in the synagogue, where you sat at a meal, how people addressed you. It was all determined by how great you were, how much honor you were worthy of. And Jesus will continually press against the, uh, the desire to always be praised. In Matthew 23, 6, it'll be on the screen. He's talking about the Pharisees and he says, they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogue, there was a belief in Jewish culture <clears throat> that your earthly order, your status, had an implication on your heavenly order. Does that make sense? So how close you were to the throne of God was dependent on how much honor you were given in this life. And so Jesus says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they are, they're kind of afraid to answer. And so Jesus uses this moment to disciple them. He says he sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You want to be first? You want to be great? You must be last. You must be a servant. And this idea was absolutely counter to their culture. And by the way, it's absolutely counter, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> and it's absolutely counter to our culture as well, right? So in our culture, to be great is to be rich. To be great is to be well-liked. To be great is to be good-looking. To be great is to have the most power. And Jesus says to be great is to serve. Do you see in this text where Jesus says that it's a bad thing to desire to be great? No, it's not in here, right? At no point does Jesus condemn the desire to be great. So let's be clear about what Jesus is saying and what Jesus isn't saying. Jesus does not say that it's a bad thing to desire to be great, but what Jesus is doing here is redefining what they think great is. Does that make sense? So think about the garden <clears throat> in Genesis 1 and 2, when God creates Adam and Eve. Do you think that God intended for his creation to just be average worshipers? No, he intended for them to be great worshipers to be the best worshipers that were ever created. Okay, now think about the purpose of the law and the Old Testament. The law has a few different purposes. 
Romans says that the law reveals our sin because we're incapable of following the law, right? Um, The law also says that it testifies to the one that would fulfill the law. That's also what Romans says. But another purpose of the law was to reveal the greatness of God, that God's holiness, God's character, there is nothing and no one that compares to God. And so the intent of the law is not only to reveal God's nature, God's character, but another purpose of the law was to reveal our intended nature, okay? Because in the garden, for example, when you think about the Ten Commandments, and God says, do not lie, in the garden, for example, Adam and Eve were not liars. They weren't created to be liars. They were sinless before a holy God. So when God says, do not lie, he is revealing to us our intended nature as well. In other words, saying, he's saying, I do not lie, and you were made in my image, therefore you shall not lie. So if you do lie, it not only violates my character as God, but it also violates your intended created nature. It, it can be think, tempting to think of the law as a bunch of rules. That's a shallow way to think of the law. The law that's deep into who God is, it reveals who he is. Don't lie. Why? Because God is not a liar. He will never lie to you. And you were not created to be a liar. And at your core, you were created to be a great worshiper. At your core, you were created to tell the truth. You were created to be great. You were created to be a great friend. Do you know that? You were created to be a great spouse. You were created to be a great parent, a great small group member, a great employee, a great disciple of Christ, and a great disciple maker. I mean, isn't that the point of sanctification? That throughout your life, God will heal you, he will restore you, and he will grow you to be what? To be like Christ, to be great, to be like God. You were created to do great things. Do you know that? You were created to do great things because our God is a great God. Consider Ephesians 2.10, where it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that you were created by God for God, and you will do great works for God that were planned by God for you to do. So, What's the problem with the disciples having this conversation about who is the greatest? Think the problem that we see here is that sin has corrupted our understanding of what it means to be great. And it's not just the disciples. We still do this today, that there is something in us that drives us to desire the praise of man. The text says the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest, And in order for us to be the greatest, then there must be others around us that are less great, right? And we play this nasty game in our lives where we latch onto these aspects of our lives, these things that we value, and we lift those pieces up and we offer it to the world as things that give us worth. Does that make sense? It could be your intellect, that you are smarter than everyone around you. It could be your looks. It could be your family. It could be morality. It could be things like your wit, that you've always got a joke ready to go, that you're the funny one, right? And you, we pick these things up, and we offer it to the world, and we say, here's why I'm great. 
that sin has corrupted our idea for greatness. And the quest for selfish greatness is not greatness at all. It's actually sin expressing itself through our pride. And if we truly want to be great as followers of Christ, and instead of lifting up self as what makes us valuable, we need to lift up the only one that is truly valuable and truly great, Christ himself. <clears throat> so to be a great friend is to aim your friend's attention at the greatness of Christ. How many of you have been in a situation where you're meeting with a friend and they're asking for your advice and you just want to give them the best advice ever? And it's almost like in that moment, you want to be praised for how good of an advice giver you are. The reality is the best advice you could give someone is just to point them to Christ. To, to take the spotlight off of yourself and say, Here, here's what it means to be a great friend. I want to remind you about the gospel. I want to remind you about the truths of Christ. To be a great employee, right, as a man or a woman, is, is to be a person of honor. That when you say you're going to do something, you do it. That you have work ethic and your attitude is centered on the greatness of Christ. To be a great spouse is not to find your satisfaction in your spouse. It's to find your satisfaction in Christ. That the goal of your marriage is not to have the other person acknowledge how great you are, but it's together to behold Christ as one. That you find your satisfaction in him and you're able to love one another better. To be a great teenager, if you're a teenager in here, is to be bold in your faith to trust Christ in a confusing world, right? That you lift him up as the great one. There are many ways to be great in this life, but they all have one theme. We are last because Christ is first. We serve those around us because Christ has served us. And remember, you know, give the disciples a little break. At this point, the disciples, they don't fully see Jesus. They don't understand who he is. But let me tell you, when you get to the epistles and people like John and Peter begin to write about Jesus, they got it, right? After Pentecost, after the spirit falls, they began to understand what Jesus was teaching them. And we get verses like 1 John 4, 7. And this is John. Surely John was in the middle of this conversation, right? Here's what he says. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. He got it. And here's a question. Is your aim day in and day out to love, or is it simply to be loved? Is your aim day in and day out to serve, or do you live your day just wanting to be served by others? Right? Is your aim each day to see the worthiness of Christ or to have others see how worthy you are. Jesus illustrates all this by grabbing a child. I love this moment. He grabs a child, he takes him in his arms, and he tells his disciples, hey, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, <clears throat> to be clear here, I do not believe that Jesus is saying here in this moment that we should be like children. He's going to say that in a couple chapters, that we should have faith like a child. So he's not, also not saying that children are the models for humility, right? Like, parents, look, I don't doubt that you love your kid. You would die for your kid. 
but I don't know if your two-year-old is really that humble, right? Um, there's a meltdown when they, you know, look to the left, and it's like, ah, I'm like, why are you crying? Um, but Jesus is saying here that we, it's not that we should be like children, but the lesson here is on how we treat children, okay? The object is, are you willing and to, to serve and to love a child? And we must understand how children were seen in the first century, okay? Like, it's almost impossible to believe just how worthless this culture saw children. I mean, for the most part, this culture saw no value in children. Like, it would not be uncommon that children would be abandoned, left with the trash to die. In, in Greece, scholars estimate that the majority of households in Greece, um, had, there were one-child households, because more than one, it was too many mouths to feed. Children were often sold into slavery, Abortion was incredibly normal and common. Kids were often abandoned. In fact, it wasn't until Christianity had sway in Rome until the practice of abortion was eliminated. And I have no doubt, I don't know for sure, no doubt, so this is my opinion, I have no doubt that this moment, as Jesus holds this child and essentially says, you want to be received by me, then you must receive Children, that it's my belief that this is one of the moments of discipleship that influenced the disciples and therefore the New Testament church as they followed Christ in a world that abandoned their newborns and killed their unborn. That this is one of the moments that shaped how the Christian views children, and especially how they view the unborn and the abandoned, that they love them and they serve. And so when the church began to explode, one of the things that the world saw, and you can read about this in church history, one of the things that the world saw was how much the Christian loved the child and loved the unborn, how they fought for them, how they cared for them. When no one else would, the church was picking up children off the streets. So Jesus says, you want to receive me, then you receive this child. This is one of the reasons why, if you are a member here, we, we do. We, we expect that every member here serves in the, in the children's ministry. Right? Every single person. doesn't matter if you have a child or not. That all of us, together, we love the child that God has brought to this faith family. Every single one of us. I mean, look at what Jesus says. Whoever receives one child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. If you honor a child, you set off a chain reaction that reaches to the throne room of heaven. Do you see that? You honor a child in my name, you honor me. And not just me, but the one who sent me. And historically, especially in America, the children's ministry is the least served ministry because you will not get glory by serving there. No kid's going to praise your name. Well, they might you know, be very happy to see you, but you're not going to get thanked that much. May it never be the case here that if we want Jesus to receive us, then we must love and serve the child. Love them and honor the ones that he's put in our faith family. That we as a church redefine what it means to be great. That we're a church that loves children even though they may never show their gratitude. Right? Because focusing on Christ and seeing him as the greatest, it creates humility in us. And you see the same idea in our next moment. So, 
Look at our next moment, and you'll begin to see the theme of these four moments and why, they're all, why I believe Mark put them uh, together. So John comes up to Jesus, and he says, hey, I saw someone casting out demons in your name. And so just so you know, Jesus, we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. In other words, we saw a guy that we don't know who doesn't belong to our crew doing your work, and because he was not part of our crew, we told him to stop. Aren't we the best, Jesus? Notice, there's nothing in this text that assumes that what this guy is teaching or preaching is, is wrong. He, he's, he isn't preaching some false theology. He isn't leading people astray. The issue that John has with him is that God is at work through someone else outside of the disciples. I remember uh, one time I was preaching at a Disciple Now, which a Disciple Now is a youth retreat for students. It happens like Friday, Saturday, <clears throat> Sunday. I was pretty young, like 21 years old. And I remember I studied and I crafted and I perfected like three different sermons that were just baller. I mean, they were like the best, right? So I was going to preach once on Friday and two on Saturday. And after I did my last one, I felt so good. I was like, I killed it. Like every single one of those kids is going to love Jesus because of me, right? Well, typically a D-Now speaker would speak on Sunday. And, but I was serving as a youth minister, and so I couldn't do that. And so um, they asked a guy who went to church there to give the sermon on Sunday in my place. And it was a guy that I went to high school with. And how do I say this? He's probably never going to watch this video. Uh, he was an absolute jerk, okay? I mean, he bullied kids in our high school. Um, he wasn't a believer. But then story had gotten back to me after I had left that high school that Christ had grabbed his life and radically transformed him. I had never seen it before. I hadn't talked to him since high school, but I knew that I had heard about it, and I heard that this guy was preaching in my place. And so on Sunday, I get a text from one of the leaders of that youth ministry, and they said that that guy had just preached the best gospel proclamation that they had ever heard, and that tons of students that morning gave their life to Christ. <clears throat> How do you think I reacted? Yeah, there was something in my 21-year-old arrogant mind that was filled with disappointment and bitterness. And in that moment, all of my pride and insecurities just came flowing out. I mean, it was actually a scary moment in my life when I realized what was happening and how arrogant and prideful I had become. So let me ask you this. Let me take it from me, personal to us. <clears throat> What if God began a true, real revival in our city? Like, lives were being transformed. I mean, God just, the spirit just fell on our city and things were changing. I mean, the gospel went out, people heard it, received it, and his word exploded. But he began that revival at TBC, or Miller Heights, First Baptist Belton. He didn't start it here. Would we have the humility as a church to celebrate that work? Or would we, be, would we be jealous that God didn't do it through us? Right? It's just something to reflect on. Let me say it in a way that can be very practical for us. <clears throat> and I'm shortening some stuff here because of my voice. An arrogant church is a destructive church. An arrogant body, an arrogant faith family is a destructive faith family. If we would ever have the audacity to claim that we're the only church that God can and should work through, then we will be a destructive church. 
A church that claims that they are the only way to truly know God is not a church that proclaims Christ. That is a church that proclaims self. And you should be weary of them. And if we ever begin to sound like that, you should call us out on it. Because that is a scary moment for a church when they become so inward focused that they think only God can work through them. Right? We have to be very careful of that. It is the mark of pride. The ultimate result of being focused on self and pride is highlighted in the next and last moment. Look at verse 42. Let me give you four things about this moment. I'm not going to read it again. And this moment, it's a hard text. In fact, I probably could have waited to do this on its own next week. And and probably while I was reading it, some of you were like, oh, we're doing a lot today. Um, I could have, but I'm I'm trusting that it's God's will that, that we talk about these verses within the context of, I think Mark intended them uh, to be learned in. <clears throat> but I, I don't want, just because it's going to be a very short tag on at the end, I don't want you to miss the seriousness of this moment. So four things about this moment. One, we should be serious about keeping others from sin. We should be serious about keeping others from sin. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone Millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So what is he referring, talking about little ones? Um, some believe it's children here. Some believe it's a reference to all believers. My opinion is the latter, that it is a reference to all believers. One, because this is in the context of Jesus' previous conversation with John and specifically what he says in verse 41, but also because this whole section is applicable to any believer Uh, when you consider the entirety of Scripture, that we should all be serious about keeping others from sin. So if you're married, you should be serious about keeping your spouse from sin. (coughs) If you're dating, you should be serious about keeping your boyfriend, your girlfriend from sin. If you're a parent, you should be serious about keeping your child from sin. If you're a leader of a ministry, you should be careful of the way you talk, of the attitude in which you talk with the people that you serve with. That when you look around at your sphere of influence, that we should be serious about keeping those around us from sinning, either intentionally or unintentionally. This is not something that we can just read and go, oh, that's interesting. No, that we should do some serious reflection on who we influence, the way that we interact with people, and the way that we influence people in this life. Second thing, we should be serious about our sin. We should be serious about our sin. He says in verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. (laughs) It is better for you to enter life crippled with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. So you probably heard this before, but the language is symbolic here. Jesus is not actually telling you to cut off your hand. Nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to cut off our body parts. In fact, the reality is if you did just have one hand, you would still be tempted to sin, Right? Because the problem is not your hand, it's your heart. But the language here is meant to shock us. It's meant to shock us. That what Jesus is really saying here is that no matter how important you think your hand is, your foot is, your eye is, it's not as important as doing whatever you can to keep yourself from sin. So let me ask you, <clears throat> for each of you to consider, is there a sin in your life right now that you are ignoring or hiding 
I'm not going to label what sin that could be. I think that's the Spirit's job to convict you of that. And the reality is, if you currently are in sin, you know. You know. Spirit's convicting you right now about what that sin is. But the one who sins and ignores it or just brushes it off as no big deal is the one who is full of pride. The humble confess. The humble repent. The humble seek reconciliation. The prideful go from conflict to conflict, and they fight to come up with excuses for their sin. Third thing, we should be serious about health. I think I've told this story before, but um, when I was a freshman at Mary Harden Baylor, <clears throat> I had an intro class called Christian, Intro to Christian Ministry. And the professor was a legendary Dr. Kemp. Okay, if you know Dr. Kemp, <clears throat> he was just a gentle and kind man, been a pastor for like 25 years, and was <clears throat> a professor in his retirement. Well, one day we walk into class and everyone is chatting as they walk in. And as we're sitting down, you hear this guy in the very back, as he's sitting down, they're chatting away. He turns to his friend and he goes, oh, hell no. Just as loud as he can be. I mean, so loud it was awkward, right? Like everyone's like, oh, did he just yell that? And so then everyone like sits down and everyone looks at Dr. Kemp. What is Dr. Kemp going to do in this moment? And so Dr. Kemp, he looked up at us. He slowly got out of his chair, and he walked over to the left <clears throat> to a huge window, and he just stared out the window for like 15 seconds, and we're dead silent. We're like, oh my goodness, what is going on? So Dr. Kemp, <clears throat> he's looking out the window, and then he looks at us, and he says, hell is not a joke. Class dismissed. And we were like, oh my goodness. And I've never forgotten that, that hell is not a joke. We should be serious about hell. Three times in this text, Jesus mentions hell. In fact, we don't have time to go through them all, but Jesus talks about hell more than any other person in the Bible. Do you know that? Any other character. And the reality is that there are many in our churches who are scared to talk about hell, to think about hell, because we can't comprehend a reality where a loving God would send people to hell. But the reality is, a loving God is not loving if he is not just. And a just God cannot just excuse sin. He can't do it. It's impossible. It would violate his nature to just give a pass to sin. And church, our hearts should break that hell is a reality for billions in this world. And even more than that, that it is a reality for people who have never heard the gospel, who don't have a Christian living in in or near their city, and there are no churches for them to ask about Jesus. That there are billions of people in the world who have never heard the gospel, and their destination is hell. That should break our hearts. When we think about the people in our neighborhoods and around the world, that hell is where they are headed. And we should be serious as the church about the reality of hell, and it should spark our worship, our prayer, and our evangelism. There are no excuses. Jesus was serious about hell, so his church ought to be serious about the reality of hell. Fourth thing, we should be serious about being at peace with one another. Now, it's interesting, and I struggled with it this week. It feels like Jesus just kind of tags on the latter half of verse 50, doesn't it? Like, 
have salt in yourself. Oh, and be at peace with one another. You're like, what? <laughs> what? How do these things connect? What in the world is going here? Well, I think it's centered on that word salt, okay? So in verse 49, follow me here, I'm almost done. For everyone will be salted with fire. What in the world does it mean to be salted with fire? In Leviticus, great book, by the way, uh, in Leviticus 2, 13 through 16, God tells his people that they should season their grain offerings with salt. And then he says, don't let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your offering. And, when he sa- and then he says, the priest shall take that salty offering and burn it, okay? And it's a picture of an offering that's pleasing to God. And so when Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire, here's what he's saying. For the believer, their life is to be an offering for God. That's what he's saying. Remember, it was Jesus that said on the Sermon on the Mount that you are the salt of the earth, that our lives, when saved by the grace of Jesus, we are transformed by Jesus, and now we live our lives as an offering. Romans 12.1, right? To be a living sacrifice. And so he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Here's the connection. There are people all around us who are on the road to hell. But for the one who finds their worth and greatness, not in themselves, but in Christ, where they say, this is not my home. This is not where I belong. The understanding of heaven, the understanding of sin, and the understanding of the full character of God creates humility in us, not pride. And the pride, one of the marks of pride is conflict with others. That the prideful, the one who is not serious about sin, will go from conflict to conflict to conflict and just make excuses in between them all. The humble will seek to reconcile. The humble will seek to love. That a mark of the salty person is reconciliation and kindness and love. Does that make sense? So we must be a people who humbly flee from our sin where we see our need for Christ, we see his transforming grace and bow at his feet because he's great and we aren't. And when we realize that he is great, we will serve and love one another because I already have everything I need in him. I don't need anything from you. I'm satisfied in him and so I'm free to love you and you are free to love me. 